This is Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. We bring you the latest and best strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines by investing in healthy and engaged workforces that deliver real ROI. Welcome to today's program. I'm Stephen Van Yoder. And I'm Jim Purcell, and we're the co-founders of the Returns on Wellbeing Institute. Welcome to today's podcast. The COVID-19 pandemic reminded the world that a crisis can strike anyone at any time. And because a major crisis can severely impact employees and workplaces, companies are increasingly including disaster relief as part of a comprehensive financial well-being strategy to help employees gain security and peace of mind that they can meet serious emergencies. Our guest today is Holly Welch Stubbing, CEO of E4E Relief. E4E is a nonprofit that helps employers provide company-specific grants to employees who face natural disasters such as hurricanes and wildfires and personal hardships such as a serious illness or domestic violence. Today, Holly will discuss E4E's impressive efforts over the last 20 years and the broad role of emergency relief and workplace well-being initiatives. Holly, thanks for being here with us. Thanks today. so much for having me, Jim. I really appreciate being on. Uh, Holly, tell us a bit about E4E, its history, and what you do. E4E Relief uh, is an organization that partners with compassionate companies to award grants to individuals that face a hardship or a disaster. Um, we've been around since 9-11. We were formed in 9-11 um, by two financial service firms who lost employees in that tragedy who wanted to provide support for that terrible disaster. And what came out of that um, terrible disaster and the support of those uh, in need was the idea of employee relief itself. It really, truly seemed to be born out of 9-11. Mm-hmm. And what happened over that 20 years is that companies have uh, leaned into the idea that they want to help employees in crisis um, because it's the right thing to do, but also because they want to support their um, opportunity to get back to work and to work with their colleagues and to be in better shape um, to come back and do what they do at the office. But when it started, it was primarily local, and then it took off from there rapidly expanding starting like in 2012 when Hurricane Sandy hit and then 2017 when you had the trifecta of Harvey, Irma, and Maria. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. It, it does seem like um, these major climate-related and other disasters are a prompt for companies to open these programs. And so we have seen kind of a, a spike in growth with every single uh, major disaster. Sandy was certainly formative for us. Right. Because we start uh, getting calls from companies really all over the world. We got calls from um, Europe uh, as well as other parts of the United States. And that's sort of what prompted us to uh, take a look at the structure of E4E and what would be necessary to scale the business and offer this nationally. Um, and so each one of those uh, crises has made us, frankly, more ready for the next mm-hmm. um, and able to serve a wider band of employees. I understand your clients tripled between 2017 and 2020 and include companies such as Bank of America, Ally Financial, Hyatt, Petco, Wells Fargo. That's correct. We have um, 117 companies we're doing this for nationwide, but we've served 145 companies. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is sometimes companies choose to stand up a program for a particular disaster and then close the program, and then others um, opt to have an ongoing year-round, year-after-year effort in employee relief that they just keep open for whatever hardships and disasters come. So we've grown from um, sort of organically from that original 5 to 12 to 36 to 50 to 117 um, in that period. And those 117, are they exclusively in the United States? They are um, companies all headquartered in the United States. That's intentional uh, right now. But we are offering worldwide grants to employees uh, wherever they live for those 117 companies. You say we provide grant-making to individuals with a focus on employee Mm -hmm. relief programs for companies. We're a third-party administrator of employee relief programs, and our broader purpose is grant-making to individuals directly. So how does that work? You have some choices when you're setting up these programs for how you'd like to set them up. You can you can set them up in a charitable fashion or a non-charitable fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, a non-charitable fashion looks a lot like paying a paying of um, an additional payment through payroll. Um, although there are special times where the president declares a disaster where where a company can pay a grant directly um, themselves, but outside of that. Charitable is really the best way to go because you're using, you have multiple sources of supporting it, both from your corporate foundation and your corporate line items. Um, and you have the opportunity to obviously take a tax deduction for that if you can use it um, at the corporate level. Individuals can contribute and get tax deductions. So employees can contribute, vendors mm. can contribute, any community member can contribute to the relief program get a tax deduction, and then what we're trying to do is run the program such that the grant is not included in a person's taxable income, so that they are really getting the full benefit of the award. In the the non-charitable context, of course, you would either have, you would either need to gross it up or you would need, or the taxes would come out of it. So it's been designed in in the United States, we, we say, um, to our large global companies, that this U.S. tax domicile, if you will, of relief programs is kind of the sine qua non of opportunities in, in relief because it's the best tax structure to achieve uh, the objective that we're going for, uh, which is to maximize the award to the individual in the, their time of need. Uh, would typically there be seed money by the company and then employee contributions? into the fund in order to fund it for uncertain requirements in the future? Yes. We, we work with companies to use this 20 years of data to, to essentially establish a mathematical model to say this is how much of your employee base will likely utilize this program. And then they take, mm-hmm. we, they take that information and say we're going to fund it um, with some seed funding. And then what we do is we we work with them to determine whether or not they want to establish a fundraising initiative to help support it, which allows, of course, employees to engage around it. What you find with these terrible disasters, of course, as we speak, we unfortunately we have the Ukrainian crisis right now. And you see a lot of uh, employers and employees in particular trying to find a way to support their colleagues. Um, in that part of Europe, um, and in that part of the world. 
We were talking earlier about uh, financial well-being becoming much more of, um, of a workplace uh, concern. And a lot of employers are putting programs together uh, that you know, comprehensively look at uh, financial well-being and ways, you know, beyond the pay and benefits that they can help employees uh, prepare for emergencies, uh, achieve more security. And there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of focus, a lot of studies show that uh, employees' fear of their inability to meet emergencies causes a lot of stress and for good reason. Where do you see what you're doing fitting into a total comprehensive financial security uh, approach for employees and, and what are some of the most common types of emergencies over the last decade or so that you found uh, your programs really helping to address? You know, we know that COVID has created a tremendous um, financial stress for mm-hmm. employees. There's study after study, multiple disciplines, PwC study, salary mm-hmm. finance study, MIT Fund Management Review study. Many of those say that, um, you know, between 40 and 60 percent of Americans have um, increase their financial stress as a result of COVID. We know that employees are financially stressed are 10 times likely than those who aren't to struggle to finish daily tasks. So the reason that corporate America is looking at because it has direct impact on their ability to get things done. Um, and, you know, we do think that relief is the player, if you will, um, in in a sleeve of, of one of many things that companies can do or will do. Um, this is, um, you know, something that affects a small percentage of the population of employees, but those that it affects, it affects dramatically. And the ones that are the most difficult for employees to handle, of course, are those things they can't plan for. You know, and there's, unfortunately, we have a lot of unexpected things um, that are happening in our world around climate, around personal tragedy, medical issues, war and violence, things that people, you know, they just can't plan for. And so when we look at, you know, what has E4E seen in terms of grant making for the last few years, in particular in 2020 and 2021, of course, our, our number one um, grant in terms of hardship is related to uh, infectious disease. But we had several, um, climate-related disasters. If you think about the winter storm in Texas, um, that was an incredibly high event for us in terms of uh, the time of year and what it was, um, significant relief effort there. And most of these folks are are requesting assistance for their mortgage or their housing, um, their basic utilities. Uh, They may need to evacuate and move to safety, and so we're Mm -hmm. helping them with their evacuation expenses. Um, and that might include food or clothing, but we are also seeing um, the need for significant home repairs because of the number of climate-related disasters and the amount of flooding. Hey, can you illustrate with any case studies or success stories uh, uh, your program, how it's worked in action successfully? You know, on the catastrophic disaster front, we've, we've really supported almost every major um, U.S. disaster in the last 10 years whether that be what the wildfires in California, uh, the hurricanes on the, in the southeast, um, in, in some cases the northeast as well, um, I, you know, the recent tornadoes that swept across the middle part of the U.S. Um, so if, if it's a climate-related disaster, even if it's hitting a small area, we have an employee size that's large enough now where many are, get, are, are applying. 
um, in the uh, southern winter storm that I mentioned, we gave away almost $3 million in grants, and we had 3,750 applications. But then we also have this ongoing financial hardship that's sort of all the time, if you will, um, mm. meaning there are always financial hardships, and we are always seeing a steady stream of those types of applications. It's typically um, a medical, a short-term that really throws a family off. So we sort of have this ongoing financial hardship effort all the time, and then that is matched, if you will, with these disasters. What we know, um, because we've done some impact research on our grants, we've, we've received thousands and thousands of uh, completed surveys the last two years. 50% of those surveyed avoided late fees on a bill. Uh, 38% avoided shut off of their utility. 38% um, avoided uh, downgrading their meal choices. 20% avoided eviction. So we do feel like these are having a, a human service impact, if you will, a social impact. What are the sorts of hardships, if you will, that you would not pay out for? When we wouldn't pay out would be, for example, if someone is um, applying because they have tremendous debt and they're looking for um, mm -hmm. a grant to help diminish their debt. That is not something that is charitable under the code. Understood. Um, so we award grants for that. Um, another reason we might not award grants is because in a financial hardship situation, we layer on an income requirement because that's what the IRS requires. And so if you have a high income, or high earth, um, you might not qualify for a hardship award mm -hmm. because the wants you to be in a certain class of income um, and have a certain kind of event happen in order to support it. In your opinion, uh, what do you think are the types of financial hardships or potential financial hardships uh, that employees could be facing in the coming years? I definitely think that um, in in salaries and income bans and other things that companies are considering, benefits, all of those things affect um, the employee's ability to sustain a hardship. And, um, you know, because the uh, amount of financial stress is so high, we do anticipate both continued catastrophic disasters in the form of climate based on the research and how things have gone, mm -hmm. but also this baseline um, need for support um, because the, the, the salary and income of certain employees in certain geographies and certain uh, industries, it, it is not um, at a level that can sustain a continued hardship. Uh, are there other programmatic types of considerations you would think beyond what you're providing uh, that employers should just be uh, aware of? One of the things that we're starting to get is, is, is a lot of questions trying to link um, mental health and well-being, the conversations that companies are having there with relief and how the two may or may not relate. So when we talk about what's coming in the future, this question is kind of linking this niche, like you said, to the broader work. Um, you know, we know that companies are really looking at employee assistance programs, for example, um, and, and looking at those to say, do they have what we need in terms of the mental health supports and well-being supports that are necessary to move forward? And um, 
where we at E4E are really looking at well, what are the mental health supports that can be funded through a charitable program. Uh, we have a company that we're working with that has decided to really go deeply in that direction and kind of move their relief program towards a mental health support fund for those uh, that need it. Um, and that would be allowing for the payment of, of certain mental health kinds hmm. of expenses that would be allowed under the code. In terms of mental well-being, the two issues, of course, are, are stigma and access. In, in terms of access, one of the biggest ones, your health plan, if it has very large deductibles and co-pays, lower paid employees simply can't afford to go out and get the care they need. Is this something that you're thinking about looking into? We're trying to figure out if we can help with a part part of that gap. Um, yeah. It would obviously be for that are, as you noted, paid at a certain level, um, you know, that don't, that just can't get there another way. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea program that this company is launching um, is just that. I think one of the things that makes us unique in that regard is the stigma piece is a, is a little less obvious because we are a third-party provider. The employers beyond funding, they're, they're not informed about who gets what, etc. There, there's a confidentiality um, uh, provision in place for that. Is that right? That is true. Uh, th there is a confidentiality to it. What we do is we ask if the employee is willing to share their story mm -hmm. with the employee. And a good percentage of those employees are willing. The reason that we do that primarily is because we're trying to use it as an engagement tool to give the information back to the company to do what we talked about earlier, which is build build a team of people that feel like they're helping their colleague in a peer-to-peer -peer manner, and, the, and, and they understand what happened, and there's a story that can be told about that. When I was CEO of Blue Cross, we had a several employee disasters, and I talked with one of my vice presidents about setting up an internal fund to take care of these sorts of things. And, and she said, Jim, don't go there. Uh, that, that way lies madness because we're going to internally have to figure out who deserves what and what amount. We're going to be accused of uh, being political, about favoritism, this, that, this, that. No way. Uh, let the Sunshine Fund take care of it. Uh, what would you advise employers who are thinking about doing this themselves? You know, there's sort of two ways to go. There's there's the way that you were thinking about, because that's what you knew and understood, which was, can we do this in-house? And, you know, that really does involve exactly what you said, which is setting up, um, a, probably setting up a 501c3 with a, all the infrastructure, people, process, technology, leadership, et cetera, mm -hmm. to run our companies that are doing that. Uh, typically, those companies are quite large. Uh, the largest among us, um, and they have um, their own programs. But even some of the largest among us have decided they don't want to do this themselves. Each of those have their own special things. And when you factor in favoritism, confidentiality, equity among the team, the mm -hmm. equitable distribution grants, those are the things that employers are worried about. They're also worried about fraud. Um, you know, there have been instances of in-house programs with fraud where you know, three people were on the board and they paid their friend and that sort of thing, and there was no oversight of it. Yep. So there, those are the things that, that you're 
smart HR director was concerned about. Why is this an employer issue anyway? Isn't this what we in the military used to call a personal problem? You know, beyond the nice and right thing to do, what's the business case for this? Something I'm really focused on right now, you know, we know that happy employees are are engaged employees and engaged employees are productive employees. We've seen multiple study after study that says that engaged and productive employees play a huge role in business profitability and success. And the reason that I care about that, of course, is because if people are going to create these year-round, year-after-year programs, they need to understand why they're doing it and what it's doing for the business, or they will not be able to fund it in an ongoing way. You know, it's one thing to have COVID and have everybody step forward and say, I want to help our people in a really difficult moment. But then to say, I want to continue this, to me, requires a, a broader engagement of what the returns on well-being really are, and you know, do these uh, relief programs, as you said, fit in a niche of employee engagement that allows the company to have um, get people back to work faster or create better loyalty, you know, with the firm, um, and ultimately does it increase their ability to deliver on their value proposition? So I, I think you're doing a terrific job. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. To learn more about our resources and programs that help employers make employee well-being a bottom-line business strategy, please visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com.